In a strict religious society, a woman is forced to wear a symbol of her shame sewn into the bodice of her dress. The book, The Scarlet Letter. The author, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's Let's get get lit. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Mm-hmm. So we are going to skip the theme this week. But okay. I did want to chat briefly about the time period in which this book takes place. In the audio version of this book, there is an introduction where the reader describes the setting a staunchly Puritan world of 1600s Boston. Kari, do you know anything or what do you know about that time period? Um, I feel like I should know a lot. <laughs> but if you ask me specific questions, I'm not sure I have uh, any real uh, knowledge of what life was like. I know it was hard. Um, these are uh, people who have broken off from uh, the church have been exiled in their home. And so they uh, became colonizers in America. Um, and their goal was to create a safe haven for themselves uh, while removing native um, inhabitants and uh, living a life on their terms. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty, that's a good overview. The Puritans were English Protestants who fled to the American colonies so that they could worship freely and without persecution. They were labeled Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England from its Roman Catholic teachings that were not based on the Bible. Puritans lived according to strict religious principles, and they gave severe punishments for those who violated God's law. They even fined people for not attending church. (laughs) Puritans believed in education, and the clergy was essentially the government. That women didn't have a role in the church or in government at that time. The Puritans were building schools to educate their clergy. They even set up what school, Kari? Do you know? Oh, do I know? Uh, Harvard. Yes, Harvard. (laughs) So that's the scene. We're living in a strict religious environment. The people are educated. Uh, I think they're farmers also, farmers and fishing. Everybody had to be a farmer. It ain't like you was going to the supermarket. (laughs) It was a hard life. (laughs) Exactly. And they like taverns and they like drinking beer. So that's the scene (laughs) that we're about to dive into. So, Kari, why don't you share um, some information with us about the author and maybe the context for writing the book? Okay, And I'll say your theme of the week is um, Puritan living. Okay, In the 1600s. So it was brief, but effective. And we'll dive into more of what that time was like um, as we discuss Nathaniel's life. So less than 30 years, if you can imagine, after the Declaration of Independence was adopted, Nathaniel Hawthorne was born on the 4th of July in Salem, Massachusetts, an area famous for what, Alexis? 
the witch hunts. Right. Witch trials that took place about 100 years before Nathaniel's birth. So there's a lot going on in this 130 year period. Um, a few more noteworthy things about Nathaniel. His great, great, great grandfather, William Hawthorne, was a Puritan, of course, and the first of the family to immigrate from England. He also settled in Salem. So obviously the Hawthorns love this area, you know, yep. mm-hmm. they love mm-hmm. kicking out Native Americans <laughs> or uh, calling them disparaging names and building houses and work in the land. And no doubt it was beautiful. Uh, William's son. Now remember William Hawthorne was the first of the family to come from England. His son was one of the judges who oversaw the Salem witch trials. Did you know that? Yes. You yes. Did. It's actually in the book that I, I've got oh, to read. I love mm-hmm. your book. It seems to have a lot of background information. It does. It really does. And it's beautiful. Like you're holding it up. It looks great. So, um, just so everyone knows, the Salem witch trials were where you could be like, uh-uh, Alexis, you stole my book because I lent it to a year ago and you still got it. You a witch. <laughs> exactly. And then maybe I'll go to my husband and I go, dear Lord, because that's what I'm calling my husband. Dear Lord, I do fear my friend Alexis is a witch. And that meanwhile, was. I'm just mad because you still got my book. Exactly. They used to set people up for the okie doke. Right. Now I go clean out my closet. Turns out my book down there. Too bad. Because the town is already convinced you a witch. (laughs) Yes. And I'm hanging somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or hung. That's more like it. Like hanged. Hanged and burned. And burned. Yeah. They done torture you to death. And I'm like, oops. Here was my copy of How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Just kidding. <laughs> Mind <laughs> you, you, you remain silent. You ain't coming oh, back to I ain't going to gonna say nothing. Somebody better think I'm a witch. <laughs> so what we're trying to say is these judgments were arbitrary and overall foolish. Um, 19 women, however, or 19 persons were executed by hanging. Anyway, moving on. Nathaniel was born Haythorn, but added the W in college, possibly to distance himself from his pretty famous relatives. He was like, <laughs> the judge that killed your mama, that ain't me. That, that's I'm Hawthorne. You must be thinking of the Haythorns. <laughs> Happens all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> right, right. It said that um, Nathaniel was um, also playing one day with friends when he was about nine years old. Did you hear about this? A ball hit him on the leg and he was so <laughs> embarrassed that he stayed in bed for a year. No, no. You didn't read about this? It. No. He said he was that. lamed. He said, ow, I can't walk ever again. Doctors <laughs> came to investigate, to, um, you know, help him. They couldn't find anything wrong with him, but he stayed in bed for a year. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, what else about Nathaniel? So he was sent <laughs> to school in Maine as he got older and he missed his mother and sisters back home in Salem. So he hand wrote a newspaper. He created a newspaper, wrote it out by hand and sent it to his mother and sisters as a way of staying in touch. And inc- yeah. it included like poems, essays and humorous like um, newsy stories. This is just giving us a glimpse into his uh, literary future. Uh, so, yeah, what else about him? In college, he waged a bottle of Madeira wine uh, with a friend. We just okay. got back from Madeira Island. More on that. Y'all, we've been out here. It, in discreets, y'all. Okay. 
I know y'all ain't heard the podcast. We're still friends. (laughs) (laughs) We have not fallen off. Right. Oh, we ain't falling out. She's still putting up with me and we're traveling the world, <laughs> building content for another podcast. More on that later. Oh, so exciting. Get Ooh. ready, sponsors. We ain't playing with y'all this time. We want the money. OK, but anyway, back back to Nathaniel <laughs> Hawthorne, I guess. In college, he waged a bottle of Madeira wine that a friend would marry before him. <laughs> he did win, but he did later marry the sister of a woman he was flirting with. So he was mm. flirting with a woman like, oh, baby, I won't. hold on. Is that your sister? Never mind, girl, <laughs> move. And the sister's name was Sophia Peabody. I couldn't find any connection to the famous Peabody, but Sophia's family was into um, promoting the English language and education. So uh, Sophia and Nathaniel later married in her family's parlor and they enjoyed a long, happy marriage. He would call her Dove, his little Dove, and she greatly admired his writing ability. In fact, I have a quote here from her. She says, I am always so dazzled and bewildered with the richness, the depth, the jewels of beauty in his productions that I'm always looking forward to a second reading where I can ponder and muse and fully take in the miraculous wealth of thoughts. Now, my husband ain't never said that about nothing I wrote, but moving on. (laughs) I was like, wow, girl, you love that man. That's she cute. do. And she like his works. She loves yeah. his works. Yeah, that's cute. I like that. So mm-hmm. he was later appointed as surveyor for the district of Salem and found it difficult to write with a government job. However, fortunately, he was eventually fired and able to write again. <laughs> and this is a period where people get in office and hire their friends and family. So once um, someone else was in office, they was like, Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh-uh, that ain't even the homie. And they kicked him out. And he was like, great, I can write. That's really what I want to do. But he was bitter about it. And even in the beginning of the book, there's this long, boring chapter about it's a really, customs house. Yeah, yeah, please. Yes. And he takes some shots at the wig party. Um, This is just residual saltiness from when he got fired. He didn't want to work there. You know how you don't really be wanting to be there, but you also don't want to get fired. And they fire you. You like, great, I ain't there no more. But also, how dare you? So. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Next man, yo. <laughs> so in 1850, he published The Scarlet Letter. And this was his first major work. It was also the first mass produced book in America, period. Hard stop. Uh, full stop and it earned him a whopping 1.5 thousand dollars over 14 years yeah but how much was that worth in real life today whatever (laughs) 1.5 thousand now you right like not for 1.5 thousand (laughs) that was success (laughs) it Um, was a major success when it came out yeah yeah, people had mixed feelings about it. It was kind of scandalous at the time. And you know that's going to sell. Okay. Mm-hmm. A Puritan society being told about themselves? Yes. Get into it. They wanted it. <laughs> so Hawthorne's <laughs> works uh, belong to an era called romanticism or a genre, I should say. And more specifically, dark romanticism, which are like cautionary tales that suggest guilt, sin and evil are the most inherent natural qualities of humanity. So to sin makes you even more human. That's the genre's um, overall point of view or it's seemingly theme. 
Anyway, Hawthorne went on to write works such as The House of the Seven Gables, which some consider to be even greater than The Scarlet Letter. Um, He went on to have a prominent position in politics and even served as U.S. consul in Liverpool before touring Europe with his family for three years. It sounds fabulous. He grew a beard. After complaining of stomach pains, however, he died in his sleep in 1864 at the age of 59. And that's Nathaniel Hawthorne. Wow, what a wealth of information. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, why don't you give (laughs) us a brief synopsis without spoilers, though, before we jump into our deep dive? Sorry, there's this big spoiler in this book that everyone already knows, even if you haven't read the book. So I'm going to put it in my synopsis, but it won't but ruin the story. that doesn't count as a spoiler, does I know, it? it's like it's given away at the beginning. It's hinted at almost on the opening page. Like yeah. Nathaniel's just dying to tell you <laughs> the spoiler. So anyway, here's the synopsis I wrote. Here we go. Mama's baby preaches maybe. A Puritan community is rocked by a scandal involving a married woman found unfaithful to her husband. Instead of condemning her to death, they mercifully allow her to be branded for her crime with a scarlet A. The red letter announces her as unclean, the fallen one, the adulteress. As the years pass, however, the town becomes less convinced of her evil nature while she becomes more committed to her solitude. When the opportunity arises to run away with the man she loves and with whom she sinned, will she take it or will her end be more painful than even her punishment? Alexis, what were your first thoughts of The Scarlet Letter? When I I think of Scarlet Letter, what immediately comes to mind is the Demi Moore uh, movie that came out. I mean, I remember the the Scarlet Letter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I barely know who Demi Moore is. Okay. Okay. Demi, right. Get it right. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. So that's what I remember. And I, I, when I, the movie came out. I remembered that there was a book about it. I had never read it before, but I kind of heard of it. So that's what it made me think of. I don't remember much about the movie. So I was intrigued to get into kind of the details of this book. Yeah. So that's that's what I know. That's what um, my first impression was. How about you, Kari? Who do you think would enjoy reading this book? If you really are a fan of the bad, bad Brontes, then I think you'll enjoy this book. It's very dark. Don't expect any happy ending. You take what you can get. It's very dramatic. Everyone is making the wrong decision for no reason. And if you love that, you'll love this book. However, it is also very good at telling you uh, the internal dialogue of a character, which I don't think the Brontes do well. So. Nathaniel, I'm not comparing you. Oh, you ain't here. But I ain't comparing him <laughs> to the Brontes because they're terrible writers. But, um, but you know, <laughs> if you world. like that, then you'll love this. You'll be like, whoa, this is amazing because you like the Brontes and they're really garbage. So then I think you'll, you'll really enjoy this book. Don't take that personal, okay? It's just, you know, thoughts. <laughs> Hate them. <laughs> okay, so Kari, are you ready to take our... Spoiler-filled deep dive into the Scarlet Letter. 
I am. And I will rely on you heavily because I just finished this book about five minutes ago and I have very few notes. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. You're, you're closer to it, but I'm an engage. I'm ready to. <laughs> All right, here we go. Part one. Give me an A. So <laughs> a crowd of emaciated, hungry looking, dirty people are gathered outside the door of a prison. Don't worry. Everybody look like this. They're Puritans. This is 17th century Boston, people. Life is hard. The building. What is it, Alexis? A prison. It's a prison because. So the Puritans moved to the colonies to form their utopia, but they knew that sin was a part of life. And so wherever they went, the two buildings or the two things they always created first was a prison and a cemetery because you're going to sin and you're going to die. So let's get that out the way. And sinners die. Mm -hmm. Throughout this book, there are scenes of sad darkness juxtaposed with hopeful uh, light. Usually, or, and by light, I mean like optimism, usually mm -hmm. in the form of something natural, something from nature. So while everyone's standing outside looking salty and emaciated and evil and hateful, there's like this rose bush. And you're like, why are we talking about the rose bush? But throughout the book, this keeps coming up. So it, it starts to make sense. And the narrator suggests that it offers a reminder of nature's kindness to the condemned. So while you're in this prison, you can still see the rose bush. And maybe that's also a reminder that God is more merciful than humans. Oh, I also want to say this isn't how the book starts. It starts with a narrator that is closely familiar because he's a lot like Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he's talking about his one of his jobs at a customs house or something. And you like, what? I do not care about this. Hey, exactly. everybody, skip that chapter. It's not related. After all of this, I think Nathaniel just wanted to unload some burdens on his mind. Um, but the whole point of it is that the this character, this fictional character, finds effects that lead him on a quest to find out where they come from. And within those effects are uh, a scarlet letter A. Yeah. And, and then, then our he, story begins. He then writes, uh, he writes this, essentially. He writes this fictional account of it. Okay, so the narr so so okay, that makes more sense, Alexis. Thank you. So the narrator <laughs> created this fiction to kind of match the items that he found. Okay, exactly. cute. Moving on, don't read that. It's terrible. Okay, so emaciated, we're at the prison. As the crowd watches, Hester Preen Preen is her name, right? Yeah. Okay, thank you, Hester Preen, a gorgeous young woman. Holding a baby emerges from the prison door. Creak. Is that and a creak inserted? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and steps up to a platform and just stands there. As she passes, the women in the crowd go, Ugh, look at her. Uh -uh, her weave is crooked. And they like, she the worst. I hate her. Ugh. It's clear they that did. they're jealous. They should have branded her with metal. <laughs> so it's clear that uh, their issue isn't just her sin, but also her beauty. Because the young, beautiful women are like, hey, everybody, it's okay. Like, be nice. Be, yeah, be nice. She's a sinner. You know, we just want her to be on the straight and narrow. And the ugly women are like, shut up. 
So anyway. <laughs> and then the, the book describes it as one uglier than the next, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so part of the ugly women's gripe with Hester Preen <laughs> is that on her breast is the letter A and it is embroidered way too beautifully. And you're like, what? What's that got to do with anything? What A stand for anyway? Armani? No, no, no. <laughs> the A stands for adulterer. And Hester was told she had to sew this on all her clothes. Or actually, she has like a badge she has to put on all her clothes to let everyone know that she is the one that committed adultery and has a child. And so when she sewed it, she did it beautifully. And everybody's also mad about that. Unlike Instead her of fellow- making it simple. Yeah, it should be like in Comic Sans. But no, <laughs> you out here with some fancy script that we can't even get for free on Google Fonts. What is you doing? This is a punishment. So unlike everybody else in town, um, remember this is like romanticism. So Hester accepts her humanity and part of her humanity is her sin. So as a reader, you're supposed to see her as more dimensional than even the townspeople who are just hypocrites really because yep. as Hester is wearing this A eventually in town and we're not there yet but as we get there she sometimes people connect eyes with her seeming to say I should be wearing an A too girl better you than me <laughs> and it, it kind of like hurts her because she's like I deserve this A and I feel I feel remorseful for my sin but I'm noticing everyone else is sinning and they hypocrites and they're not wearing an A and it kind of makes me feel like I'm surrounded by garbage. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. the sinner. I'm the public sinner, but everyone else, the hypocrites are worse. So anyway, um, talk is also going around about how she got here. And some people say that her husband, um, well, I think it is true that they like lived in Amsterdam together and he sent her to the States or yep. to the colonies and he was supposed to follow, but he never came. So she's a right. young, beautiful wife. They don't know it yet, but her husband is extremely unattractive, aggressively. So also very old <laughs> and a little hunchback, <laughs> which is irrelevant. That's her husband. Okay. I ain't trying to say that he deserved to be, uh, you know, put in this position, but right now in the book. That's all we know. He did like abandon her. I mean, I don't know. Is they married? I don't know. Yeah. So um, as Hester looks out on the crowd of people, remember, she's standing on a wooden platform. She just walked out of the prison and she's standing on this platform. She's like, how did I get here? And in her mind, she's replaying her childhood. Um, and, And this actually gives the reader more of an idea of her depth also. So throughout the story, she has the most color. There's uh, more filled in in her lines than in any other character, partly because of her sin, but partly because we know the most about her. Um, As she's standing on that platform, she squeezes that child just out of grief for her situation. And the baby screams in protest like, girl, you holding me too tight. Part two. (laughs) (laughs) Part two. Old men and young wives. So in the crowd that surrounds this platform, Hester suddenly spots who, Alexis? This man that looks quite familiar, possibly her husband. (laughs) Yeah, it's her husband, dressed strangely, standing with a Native American man. She is struck by his wise countenance and recognizes his slightly deformed shoulders. I told y'all he's a little bit of a humpback. So. We'll later learn that his name is Roger 
Chillingworth. And that's mm. easy to remember because he's chilling. Um, so he like, hey, what's up? He gives her the head nod as she on the platform, like, hey, what's up? This is where I find you. <laughs> I leave you for a few years, and this Real is what talk. you're doing. Real talk. <laughs> and he was so, like, Don't say you know me. Right. Wait, wait, wait. So before that, he talks to a stranger in the crowd and he's like, Who is this uh fallen woman? And the stranger is like, Oh, let me tell you, you ain't hear from me. Wait, However, wait. He's is- like, Where was you under a log? Let me tell you the tea. Right. Right. So the stranger is like, listen. I ain't you ain't hear from me, but this is Hester Preen, and she's the wife of a learned English, gorgeous Englishman. Okay, a great man. And look great at man. her. Look at her. She, you know, he been living in Amsterdam, and he decided to immigrate to America. You know, and he sent her, and she had affairs. Okay, he having affairs of Not the affairs. business nature, <laughs> and she up here having different types of affairs. So. Uh, Chillingworth, Chillingworth remarks to the gossiper, well, you know, it's hard keeping a young, beautiful wife. And the gossiper mm. like, OK, anyway, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> so anyway, then Chillingworth goes, by the way, do you know who the father is? And the gossiper is like, no, she won't say who it is. So no one knows who the father is of her child. The stranger tells him that Hester refuses to reveal her fellow sinner. And as punishment, she's been sentenced to three hours on this platform in front of everyone and a lifetime of wearing the scarlet A on her chest. Hester tells the uh, judges her child will never know anyone any father except her heavenly father okay because i'm never gonna snitch Mm. and then a young reverend steps in and delivers um or i'm sorry an older reverend steps in and like delivers the sermon all based around her so she's still on the platform then the the, um preacher's like sin (laughs) don't be falling into sin and he makes the whole sermon about her as she's standing there being like the living representation of his sermon. And she trying to hush the baby while he's screaming, sin is bad. At the conclusion of the sermon, Hester is led back into the prison. Um, And guess who follows her momentarily? Chillingworth. So he's promised the jailer. He's like, I'm a physician. This is Chillingworth talking. I'm a physician and I can't make her more um agreeable to authority so let me along with her <laughs> with this cup of medicine it was like a um a, the baby was crying nonstop. oh and maybe that's okay she was in emotional distress so mm-hmm. he had come to like fix that problem because he was a medicine man mm-hmm so while they're alone, they start talking secretly and have a candid conversation. He is really hurt, but he's like, uh, it's kind of like wrong that I convinced you to marry me because <laughs> you're young and gorgeous. And I don't even know how to talk to people. And I'm also like old and deformed. So, of course, this will happen. And also, um, I shouldn't have left you there. And I shouldn't have left you, right? I'm your husband and I just left you in a different in a country that's nothing but wilderness to me. So yeah, I, my bad. But now look at you. Um, I need you to promise me, swear on your life, that you won't tell anybody I'm your husband. Cause you know, I'm trying to have a new life here. Also, he was like, it'll make me look bad. 
it would make me look bad, of course. Um, and one thing he does kind of allude to is that his one attempt at human contact ever in life led to this disaster. So uh, wow. Hester, yeah, that's kind of dark. And so yeah. Hester's like, fine. Like, like I'm dying to tell people you my husband. Fine. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> So they have an agreement. Chillingworth will form a new life and identity for himself in this town. And meanwhile, Hester Prynne, the town pariah, will never tell anyone that Chillingworth is her husband. A few months later, Hester is released from prison and she's told, you know, you can be banished. But she's like, no, I'm going to stay right here by the river in a shed. And part of that, as the reader, you interpret as being her own like penitence for her crime. Mm hmm. But also you're like, who's the father? You really do know at this point, you like giving so many hints. You like, fine, I get it. He the father. <laughs> so you're like, I she actually, don't I actually agree with that. I actually yeah. agree with that. <laughs> and you know, Alexis don't never be trying to figure stuff out in books. She just let the <laughs> plot develop on its own yes, in yes. the air or whatever. <laughs> and even she noticed right away, like, okay, it's the younger preacher. Got it. So as a reader, you're like, well, she don't want to leave her baby daddy. You know, that's really what it is. So it's a little bit of both. Two things can be true. So um, let's talk about Pearl a little bit. Or maybe uh, we should talk about uh, Hester's new life. So um, Hester, before we get into her daughter, Hester stays in Boston and becomes a seamstress. She's admired for her skill. Remember, she embroidered that letter A in such a beautiful way. Well, that's letting you know she's really skilled at her her trade, her craft. However, um, she is not permitted to work on veils or wedding dresses because brides are like, no, girl, nice try. I will just, you know, have a mediocre dress and let you create something for me. Instead, she's mostly hired to dress people that are sick or dying. And everyone is ridiculing her in town. The children, uh, the older people, the dying people that she's helping. And she's also involved in charity. Yeah, Everyone is like, yeah, we'll take (laughs) your help, but you're garbage. And I don't ever want you to forget that I'm better than you, Hester Preen. You're the worst element of our society and you just can never forget it and she's like got it next let's get on with the day Um, so she's very focused on her various missions in life and allows everyone else to kind of use her as a scapegoat um, to make themselves feel better for their lives their boring lives their uh, empty lives their hypocrisy and their just mediocre living they're like well at least I'm not Hester (laughs) my life might be boring yeah so now let's talk about pearl her daughter pearl is doomed to never have friends or social standing um, but she's an enchanting little girl not just because she's beautiful but she's also interesting she thinks deeply about things and she's um, very insistent And what I mean is she's also mischievous. She's constantly questioning her mother, for example, about the scarlet A on her mother's chest. And as her mother is like, stop teasing me and breaking into tears, Pearl is like, ah, little Pearl is evil. A little bit. So her mom's like nearly in tears and Pearl is just laughing all the harder. And you can't hate her because she's gorgeous. Cute little kid. 
Um, <laughs> Pearl's also like aware of her isolation in society because as her mother is ostracized, of course, so is her daughter. Um, and when Hester tries to teach her about God, Pearl says, I have no heavenly father. And that's a little bit uh, just to her spirit of trying to be mischievous for the sake of being mischievous. But it's also telling the reader that there is something kind of um, un... Like if this is a Puritan society and everyone's supposed to be pious, this is letting you know how far Pearl is from being a part of that society. She's really outcast. Mm. Yeah. Because a lot of times they call her evil. They call her a demon child. They call her. Yeah. The townspeople call her that. Yeah. Mm Yeah. So um, because Pearl is her mother's constant companion, she's too the subject of the cruelty of the townspeople. So um, the other children especially can be cruel to Pearl and she'll like run after them screaming. Even if they're older, they like run away from her because they think they've created this otherworldliness around her. And so that for her to be like flailing her arms and going, gabba, 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 good. <laughs> they're like, whoa. <laughs> and they will all just run from her. So she's fine. <laughs> she's like, ain't nobody going to be teasing me. I'll scare the daylights out of them. Um, and she also like creates a cast of characters uh, with the insects around her, the animals. She like, remember they live in this like shed by a creek in the woods or something. So she's creating friends from the nature around her. Part three. And I have four parts. I'm keeping it simple, you guys. Part three, Mother of Pearl. Mm. So Hester pays a visit to a governor for something kind of like a um, trial, because basically the townspeople are like, we know two things. Number one, that little girl is a demon. So we got to take her from her mama and give her to a godly people so she won't be a demon no more. And number two, even if she ain't a demon, even more so we should take the child away. So basically we need to take away the child um, of Hester and give her to a more godly family. So the Pearl is the jewel of Hester's life. Like even though Hester is condemned in her heart and openly by the public, she is happy to have Pearl. Pearl is her whole world. So she can't imagine being without this very mischievous, bad little child. Mm Um, so with no one, nowhere else to turn during this pseudo trial, Hester turns to a young reverend named Dimsdale. Is that right? Yeah. Dimsdale. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing these right. So, um, Hester turns to him kind of like a roughly, like there are other judges in the room and she turns to the younger one and she's like, speak for me, speak for me to keep this child. There's no... I cannot be without this child. And it's kind of like, first of all, you a woman. So why are you talking so much in this room? Um, But also look how passionate she is about the demon child. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. is what people are thinking. And (laughs) and the young reverend stands up and he replies to the judges by reminding them that this child is from God. And so by taking away this child, you are implying that God made the wrong decision. Is Mm. that what you want to do? And he doesn't say it all strong and manly. He's like very, uh, he's like a weakling. He second guesses himself. He's also very sick physically, um, but his words always captivate people. So when he speaks, people listen and swayed by his eloquence. um, The judges agree not to separate the mother and child. They like, we wasn't even going to do that anyway. (laughs) 
<laughs> they like they really fickle. They really <laughs> They're are. They're like, good point. We weren't gonna do it anyway. It's fine. Now, at this trial is Chillingworth. And he like, hold on. Cause this was gonna be a part of my revenge. Are you sure you don't want to take away the child? And the judges are like, "Yeah, we sure." And then um, Chillingworth is like, "Well, let's reopen the investigation into who the child's father is." And the judges are like, "Oh, yeah, that's okay. I mean, God will reveal it at His own time. Uh, anybody want? What did they eat back then? Squirrel? I heard there's a squirrel barbecue down the street. Y'all, let's go." And Chillingworth is like, oh, I must know who the father is. So Chillingworth, he's created this new identity for himself in the town as a doctor. And much to the community's concern, he starts befriending Dimsdale because Dimsdale is like sickly, like we said. So, of course, this town physician is going to befriend the sickest man in town Mm -hmm. just to get his roots in the area and to be known for something. So. He appears, the young preacher, to be wasting away. And he's like always clutching his chest. He's like always got his hand over his breast as if there's something there paining him. Mm-hmm. And so um, he's also like not marrying all the ugly people's daughters. And so they're like, who's going to care for you? And so they're like, let's send this physician Chillingworth to go live. Like, which I thought was a little far. his yeah. house. Crazy. Go live with Dimsdale. Save our Dimsdale. The town really loves this young preacher. Um, and they also used to love Chillingworth, but the more he was around them, they're like, mm, you might be the devil. <laughs> the town is fickle. Okay. Everyone's crazy. There's nothing to do. There's no television, no cable. So the two men, Chillingworth and Dimsdale, um, they like, I think, rent a room in a widow's house, um, which Like, and it's also next to a cemetery. So it's a reminder of death. It's like the widow and then you're next to a cemetery. And it gives them an opportunity constantly to contemplate um, mortal sin and death all the time. So they're having these conversations like all the time discussing these things. Do you remember how the minister's room is decorated? No, no. Scenes of David, Bathsheba, and Nathaniel. So he's got biblical adultery painted all around him as if that room was made for him. Because if you haven't guessed yet, he the daddy. So (laughs) he the baby daddy. He's the baby's father. So Chillingsworth room is like basic. It's like a laboratory for a doctor. But the minister's room, Dimsdale's room, is like painted in his sin, basically. So... Um, like I said, the townspeople were initially like a physician. Nice. Come on, Chillingworth. You can hang with us. You can sit with us. Um, <laughs> but the more he was around them, they was like, mm-mm. And so they decided to start calling him the devil. They think that he is in a fight for Dimsworth's soul. They like really make a lot of stories about people. But they do agree. Chillingworth, some about him is off. And so he's staying with the young preacher and together they're like good and bad. They are the personification of good and bad. They don't know Chillingworth been in them streets and them sheets. Um, So (laughs) they think he is just the most pious, most nearly an angel on earth. And Chillingworth, for some reason, it's just his vibes. He did. He don't like him. They don't like him. Yeah. So um, moving on. 
Dimsworth's behavior has reinforced Chillingworth's suspicions. So somehow, in a way that isn't clear, Chillingworth became suspicious of the young reverend. As Chillingworth is constantly looking for the child's father, his suspicion rests on Dimsdale. Maybe because he's probably like really attractive, even though he's sickly. And so he's probably Chillingworth is like, because remember, he's like a little deformed. He's probably a little jealous of the preacher. Mm -hmm. That's what we'll say. So he's like, maybe you the baby daddy. So... Um, They have kind of like an outburst. The minister apologizes for his behavior and the two become friends again. However, a few days later, Chillingworth sneaks up to Dimsdale while he's asleep and opens his shirt. Because remember, Dimsdale is always holding his chest. So uh, Chillingworth like creeps up on him while he's asleep and opens his shirt to see why Dimsdale is always holding his chest. And he sees something on the reverend's skin. Um, like mm. on his bare skin that causes him to be that causes Chillingworth to be confident that he is indeed the father of Pearl. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Chillingworth continues to play mind games with Dimsdale. So he's confident now that Dimsdale is the one who his wife had an uh, adultery with and who fathered Pearl. But instead of just coming out and saying it or killing him, right. he's like, my purpose in life is now to torture you both. And so Chillingworth um, takes this as his revenge, just to torture Dimsdale and to torture Hester. The minister really doesn't have any friends. <laughs> and so the doctor is his closest companion, their roommates. Mm-hmm. So while he hates him in a lot of ways, he, he gets like really evil vibes from him. He still confides in him about a lot of things never telling him though his biggest secret um and he continues to suffer like Dimsdale is always suffering always clutching his chest in pain always holding his hand over his breast um but all of this pain also motivates him to deliver some of the most captivating sermons the town's ever heard So as he suffers more, the town loves him more for his sermons. And remember, sermons are also like their form of entertainment. So they're like, oh, this is, you know, really a great sermon. I brought popcorn and everything. It was (laughs) a show. Movies or a concert. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the sermons are like all about sin and hypocrisy. And it's like Dimsdale, Dimsdale, whatever. Dimsdale, yeah. Yeah. Dimsdale is talking to himself and coming really close to confessing to the congregation, but never quite making it there. Um, So he begins to torture himself physically without the courage to just be like, hey, y'all, I'm the baby daddy. Kill me or whatever, because they ain't going to kill him because he's the only form of entertainment. So really, at this point in the book, I'm tired. I'm like, (laughs) Dimsdale, if you don't just get up on that platform and that's probably why you sick. So we never are told why Dimsdale is sick. It seems to be a pain of heart and this guilt that's also eating away at his physical person. Yeah. Also, because he never just comes clean, he's so in fear of man. And he's like, I don't want to bring shame upon my position as a holy man in the city. Whatever. He let that woman stand on that platform and be ridiculed by the whole town. And yeah, he felt pain in his heart, but he let it happen. And not only that, this went on for seven years. Seven years. Uh, Pearl is seven now without a daddy. Okay. So, Dimsdale, come on. Like, get it together. We know you a great entertainer, <laughs> but <laughs> it's more to life. Like, what? So, he's like, um, 
torturing himself privately and physically when all he needs to do is come clean and be like, hey, y'all, it's me. Um, but instead, privately, he's like whipping himself. He fasts. He holds these vigils where he's exhausted and he refuses to sleep, just meditating upon his sin. And this is like, as a, a person of faith, I'm like, you spending all this time thinking about your sin, about you. And he even alludes to his um, how it's producing like uh, narcissism. Like, it's all about oh, you. Yeah. Everything is yep, about yeah. you. Yeah. Everything that he happens does. in nature, like even we'll get to it. A meteor goes across the sky. He's like, oh, that's God talking to me, talking to me about my adultery. Like everything is about him. Yeah. So because he won't um, reveal his sin. Yeah. Yeah. So um, even one night, like when he refuses to sleep, he starts to have visions, which happens. Like if you're sleep deprived, you'll hallucinate. And so um one of his visions, he's like, I need, after one of his visions, he's like, I need to go stand on that platform that Hester stood at. But oh. I'm not going to do it in public in front of everybody. I'm going to go at night. <laughs> yes. And I'm really over him now. I'm like, you must be fine, fine, because this is stupid. <laughs> like, who going to tolerate this? I'd have been left back to Amsterdam with my baby. Don't, don't nobody even know me there. This is dumb. So anyway, he mounts the scaffold, which is that wood platform and beats his chest where there's that whatever um, Chillingworth saw on the skin, wherever that is on his body, he beats it and it hurts so bad. He cries out. He's like, ah, and he's like, maybe someone heard me and they'll see me on the platform <laughs> or Dimsdale. You could just stand on the platform in the daytime. But no, he ain't gonna do that. So he's in dead at night. Ain't nobody in the street. He's screaming in the street by himself. He sees a couple people turn their lights on. And they like turn them back off and go to bed. He's like, oh, shucks. How will people ever know I'm the sinner? Um, anyway, so devastated with his own situation, he begins to laugh out loud and he hears the laugh of Pearl. And um, Hester and Pearl just left someone's deathbed like I think one of the judges is dying and remember um Hester is really given to charity so she's like yeah. helping the dead um and also embroidering uh, garments for them and yeah or the dying yeah and so yeah um he was she was making a burial robe that's right for a governor that's what it was because there's going to be a new governor at the end of the book so anyway mm -hmm. the governor died that's what it was. So Hester and Pearl are the only ones in the street. And Dimsdale is like, stand on this platform with me as I should have stood with you in front of everyone. And they do it. They do it. They do and it. And it's said that it's like electricity through the three of them. And Pearl's is like, Pearl is the only one with some sense. She's like, you going to stand here with us tomorrow morning in the afternoon? In the daylight. <laughs> in the daylight. And he like, mm -mm, I'm not. <laughs> And she asked him about two or three times. He's like, look here. I promise you I ain't. <laughs> this, this, this don't even <laughs> talk to me when you see me tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, don't even speak to me. <laughs> like so, you don't know me. You can speak to me now, of course, because no one's around. But when people are around, I, me and you, we all know each other, little girl. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, this my is crazy. This is when a meteor um, streaks across the sky and when um, they all interpret it as having made an A in the sky, the oh, meteor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
being a sign that God has seen their sin and knows what they're doing. And, you know, but they also recognize a little bit that they're all delusional because they're in so much grief and Mm -hmm. stress. Mm But the following day, the minister preaches his most powerful sermon yet. And after the sermon, um, a church like deacon or whatever he is, it's called a sexton. I don't know what that position does. But anyway, he hands Dimsdale a black glove and the deacon, I'm going to call him a deacon. He's like, hey, I found this black glove by that platform where we make sinners stand in front of everyone for their shame. And I know it's your glove. So I don't know why you would be over there. So I think the devil took it. (laughs) (laughs) This is how dumb these people is. And so, (laughs) and so uh, the preacher Dimsdale is like, yeah, must have been, that's what happened. But then when they were out there, didn't Chillingsworth come over there and see them? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Chillings. I don't know if he made himself be known, so I didn't even mention it. Okay. But Chillingsworth is like really sure now. He like, oh, oh you right, right. Daddy. That's yeah, right. So. He did make himself known. He was mm-hmm. creepy. Oh, he did? I think he did, but kind of, okay. you know, she disappeared. I guess we don't need to go into oh, so it. Oh, so only but... Dimsdale saw him, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That that happened. I remember. But the, the so the deacon is like, um, to get back at the devil, you should never wear gloves again. <laughs> So um, did you see that meteor in the shape of an A? This is the deacon talking. So now someone else has seen that meteor and also believes it's in the shape of an A. And the preacher Dimsdale is like, (gasps) and the the deacon goes, I think it stands for angel. (laughs) So, you know, these people, they ain't too bright. So hilarious. um, (laughs) Like we said, Pearl turns seven years old. And as time that means that there's been seven years since since Hester's sin became publicly known. And as Hester has ingratiated herself in society, the public secretly adores her for the most part. She's seen as humble, charitable. In fact, the A on her chest is now often um, seen as standing for able. (laughs) the able Hester she can do anything that's a good woman but didn't she commit oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah but she's still good you know folks can be good and bad Mm -hmm. God willing you know folks don't know nothing about the Bible there God willing (laughs) bless her heart so and really it's all because she serves them like she's always doing stuff for them so they love her Mm -hmm. However, Hester is only an outline of her former self. And as she becomes more loved by the society, as a reader, you notice she's like disappearing in her character, her dimensions, her color. Um, She's also deeply troubled by Chillingsworth attachment to um, Dimsdale, Mm -hmm. but she was sworn to secrecy. So she's like, why did I ever promise that? Because I really want to tell um, my secret boyfriend that. Uh, his closest companion is my husband and it's messy. So she's like, I'm going to go to Chillingsworth and tell him I'm going to tell. And so um, she goes to Chillingsworth. They come face to face and a change comes over Chillingsworth where he's like fully evil in the face. Uh. You like just looking at him. It's like looking at evil. He's the embodiment of evil. In a spasm, however, a moment of self-awareness, Chillingworth realizes how gnarled and mentally deformed he's become, dedicating his life to revenge. And he recalls the old days when he was a benevolent scholar. He was a man people sought out, um, although he didn't know much about human interaction. 
He was a wise man and a kind man in his heart. <laughs> and now he's just evil and ugly. Um, And she's like, yeah, well, maybe I did you wrong. Yeah, girl, you did. But anyway, and he's like, well, maybe I did you worse. Yeah, Chillingworth, you did, but whatever. <laughs> and the two engage in an argument for who's the most responsible for the current state <laughs> of affairs. And in the end, Chillingsworth's like, quiet all that noise. I want revenge. Now go thy <laughs> way. And that is what he said. <laughs> yeah. So in the forest, Hester meets Dimsdale. So the forest is where all the secrecy happens. Mm-hmm. All the mystery. So Hester and Dimsdale and Pearl are in the forest. And they like, hey, Pearl, go play in the water. And I'm like, Pearl gonna drown one day. <laughs> Did you ever feel like Pearl was gonna die like as punishment for them or something no. in the story? Um, that's what I kept feeling like. But anyway, so they meet in the forest um, and Hester is like, hey, I gotta tell you something. And Dimsdale like, oh, my baby, what? <laughs> and um, Hester's like, your closest friend? Yeah, that's my husband. And Dimsdale is like, no, you wicked woman. Everything you do turns to dust. I hate you. Everything about you is just <laughs> terrible. And she's like, she pulls him over her A, the A on her chest. He starts smelling her perfume. He's like, you know what? You good. I'm just playing. I'll be tripping. Really the only bad person on earth. These people are hyperbolic. Hey, the only bad person on earth. That. The only bad person on earth is chilling worse. He's terrible. <laughs> and she's like, I know. That's my husband. You know, I know. <laughs> but don't worry. I got a plan. And what's her plan, Alexis? Let's run off together. Listen, seven years ago, <laughs> Dimsdale could have been like, I'm the father. I've sinned. I've betrayed your trust. You deal with the fallout. They're not going to kill you. They love you, Dimsdale. Mm-hmm. But even if they do say they're going to kill you, just hop on a boat and go <laughs> to Europe, please. <laughs> Instead of digging your own toilets every day, they got toilets over in Europe. <laughs> I said, let's go. They got real meat. You ain't got to eat rodents all the time. This is silly. She said, we don't have to live like this. Let's get out of here. And as soon as she suggests it, he's like, has joy found its way into my life again? He's really pathetic, you guys. He's oh like, I don't know what to do. Can you think of something, Hester? Save me from myself. Now, Hester been publicly shamed these last seven years. Okay. Seven. And he's like, can you save me? <laughs> save me. And she's me. like, yes, my love, I can. And so they agree to run off to Europe together. And the decision to move to Europe energizes Dimsdale. He's like, yes, life is worth living. Um, he still has this pain over his chest, but he's cast off his like bleakness. And she's cast off her stigma, both figurative, figuratively and literally, because at one point she like rips that A off and throws it in, oh, into the forest <laughs> yeah and the little girl pearl is like mama i don't even know you without that a <laughs> and so pearl so hester's like okay girl go and get the a and i'll put it back on my chest till we get to europe this is dumb and so um they decide not to leave immediately but after he gives his greatest sermon which is the next day and the new governor is going to be like appointed and there'll be a parade and then they'll leave so they set up their like arrangements 
Um, Hester speaks to Dimsdale about Pearl and is ecstatic that the father and daughter will be able to know each other. And Dimsdale is like, are you sure? Because kids don't really like me. And she's like, don't worry. This little girl will love you. In fact, little girl, come say hi to your uh, to my friend. <laughs> and the little girl is like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and so Dimsdale is like, are you sure she'll love me? And they go back and forth about this for far too long. Um, when he returns to town, Dimsdale is a new man. He looks on everyone with contempt. He's like, you're all hypocrites. I'm better than all of you. Just because he's moving to Europe with his lover. <laughs> I mean, I'm the audacity. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts like um, secretly. Um, what am I trying to say? Like terrorizing widows <laughs> and young people. He's like, oh, I wish I could tell you that you ain't never going to see your dead loved ones again, but I ain't going to do it. But I want to. <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. He's not great. As he passes one of the church elders on his way through town, the minister can barely control his urge to utter blasphemous statements. Maybe what we're seeing is who he truly is. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. instead of publicly and even privately putting on this show of piousness. His guilt led him to that behavior. Right. Mm. His guilt led him to that behavior. Now that he wiped it off, he freed it. Guilt who is he not is. a sign of goodness. Mm -mm. You know, he's he's a he's not great. He's covering so, for it. The guilt that he felt. Mm -hmm. So echoing the novel's beginning, the narrator describes another public gathering in the marketplace near the prison. But this time the purpose is to celebrate. That's right. The new governor, because mm -hmm. the old governor died not right. to punish Hester Preen. It's a new ruler. So people are coming off of the boats. It's like a real big festival. It's Lollapalooza. OK, you guys. <laughs> and it's even pirates there. It's like a lot going on. <laughs> and remember, before this day, they secured their position on the boat that's going to take off. Um, presently in like a few hours or a few days. I don't remember if it's clear, but the boat's going to leave soon and they're going to start their new life in Europe. Unfortunately, at this Lollapalooza, uh, the captain or someone uh, associated with the boat comes over to um, Hester. Hester and they like, hey, girl, um, I just want to tell you it's going to be someone else in your cabin. Um, their name is, checks notes, Chillingworth. <laughs> he said you wouldn't mind. You know him? And she's like, yes, I know him. And the um, guy's like, great, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so Chillingworth them discovered they plan. And he's like, uh-uh, my role in life is to revenge, to avenge and revenge. And so he's like, I'm going to be on that boat with y'all and we all going to be in Europe. Lost in her th thoughts and largely ignored by the crowd, Hester is imagining herself first defiantly escaping. But when she hears about Chillingworth finding passage on that same boat, she turns, they lock eyes, and he smiles at her. <laughs> it's wicked. Mm-hmm. Wicked. Hester takes her place at the foot of that wooden platform to listen to Dimsdale's sermon. And it's a great sermon. People like it. They like, whoa, that's the best sermon we ever heard. Wow. He's just such a sermonite. Anyway. Sermonite. Um, 
Pearl, who they just let her do whatever she wants. She's been wandering all around this Lollapalooza, returns to her mother with a message. Um, oh, that's right. Pearl is the one who's like, yeah, I heard Chillingworth is coming. And throughout this book, um, they've been calling Chillingworth the black man as yeah. in not racially black, but the dark man, like mm-hmm. the evil man. And it's like the child can see his evil clearer than the adults can, although the adults see it too. Um, but the child really doesn't trust him. As Pearl is talking, you know, the mother is just really enraptured or uh, enraptured. I don't know. Just really captivated by her daughter's face and voice. And so she's just listening to little Pearl. And then she looks up and realizes everyone is staring at them. Part four, finally coming clean. Dimsdale finishes his uh, sermon, which focuses on the relationship between God and the colonies. And the crowd is moved. Dimsdale sees Hester and hesitates. Then turning toward that wooden platform, he calls to Hester and Pearl to join him. He's like, Hester, Pearl, come stand with me. And it's so odd that some people don't even compute it in their mind. Yeah, they don't know what is happening. Even the fellow uh, clergymen are like, hmm, what is going on here? We trust it. Because we trust everything this young reverend do because he's great at giving sermons. <laughs> but we're confusion. <laughs> so he's like, Hester Pearl, come to me. And um, Chillingworth runs to his side and he's like, uh-uh, you can't be publicly exposing yourself because I want to secretly, uh, t- you know, torture you, please. <laughs> and for the first time in his life, um, Dimsdale gets a backbone and is like, Chillingworth, if you don't get out of my face. I'm calling my woman and my child. And so they come and stand with him. And he declares that God has led them there. The crowd stares. Dimsdale leans on Hester for support, still leaning on this woman (laughs) as he gets up on the wooden platform and begins his confession, calling himself the one center of the world. He is not ambiguous. He is saying, this my baby. <laughs> I did this with this woman seven years ago. It was me. Mm-hmm. And the townspeople, some of them are still like, what's going on? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> what is our what is our most holy reverend talking hmm. about? Hmm. And then some are like, he's showing us the juxtaposition between the holy and the sinful. See, what he's doing is <laughs> this is like a play. The man is a genius. <laughs> This is like a play. He is here presenting to us the realization that we are all sinners. And he's using himself because if he's a sinner, you know, we all sinners because that man perfect. (laughs) After he concludes, he stands upright without Hester's help for once in his life and tells everyone to see that he, like Hester, has a red stigma. He then tears away his garments from his breast and shows everyone with Chillingworth secretly saw years ago what is that do you think alexis he too has the a on his chest like branded branded himself with the letter a on his skin that's what i gather also and that's what the reader is free to deduce Mm -hmm. however it should be known that some people in the crowd say in fact his skin was as smooth as a baby's (laughs) wasn't no a on that chest some people are so devoted to him. He can say, hey, this is my child. And they like, what you saying? Are you saying we are all children of God? And then he tears his shirt off. He's like, this A on my chest. I'm an adulterer. So what you're trying to say is, so you, 
So they they just cover his. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. The crowd recoils in shock and chilling worth cries out. Thou hast escaped me. And what this means is that Chillingsworth's mission in life is a moot point because now the Reverend Dimsdale has exposed himself. He has taken control of his life. Pearl finally bestows on Dimsdale the kiss that he begged her for or that her mother begged her to give him in the forest. It's like, now you are worthy of a kiss from your daughter. And she kisses her father and the minister drops dead. (laughs) Inexplicably. Yeah. Yeah, so the minister dies. He's like, peace out. (laughs) (laughs) No, peace out. (laughs) The narrator then discusses the events that followed Dimsdale's death, including the fact that Chillingworth, without any purpose in his life, dies a year later. (laughs) Others say Dimsdale, um, again, he never confessed to anything. He died piously. You know, the Lord called him home. I, don't, I, I would never say this. This is what these people is thinking. Chillingworth, however, again is dead. A year later, Hester and Pearl disappear. They no longer live in Boston, although Hester does return years later to live quietly and devoted to charity as she had been doing before. She also has um, different things uh, she's carrying that give the townspeople the idea that they're for another child, which also gives the townspeople the idea that they're for her grandchild. Mm-hmm. So Pearl, it is said, is wealthy and happy, having been the only heiress of Chillingworth. Mm-hmm. So, yes, without purpose, because his purpose was revenge, Chillingworth did die. But before he died, he wrote um, his will and made Pearl his sole heir. She becomes like the wealthiest person in the land. It's said that if she had stayed in that pious town that tortured her mother, she could have married anybody she wanted and they would have loved to have her because money trumps everything Mm -hmm. to so many societies. But she's like, no, I'm good. So she probably lives in Europe where they all should have went originally. And she's having a great life without them crazy people. The end. (laughs) Should we take a break? Yes, let's do it. Alexis, what were your thoughts of the Scarlet Letter? What was your final verdict? And what would you and would you recommend this book? Okay, listen. That first chapter was a nightmare. I was like, what is the point? I thought this was about adultery. <laughs> Ooh, what? Why does this yeah. matter? Then I finally got it was like a small section that told me what it was about. That was it. So the yeah, and the first chapter is very, 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 very long, mm-hmm. and for no reason, mm-hmm. for no, no reason. reason, they could have just told me I found this job, I found these papers at this new job that I got, and I'm gonna write a book about it. Here mm-hmm. it comes. That's all they had to say. Mm-hmm. It would have been great. They didn't do that though, and it was long. And then on top of that, the these and the thous, the these and the thous, <laughs> that old English. It's not for me. It's not for me Mm -hmm. because I don't understand. Okay. I need an interpreter (laughs) to listen, to read that. Okay. That happened. So while I'm glad I can check this off my list, I don't have to read it again. Find a movie. I'm sure there's a movie about it that somebody will enjoy. 
I do not have to read it again. Although your retelling was quite entertaining. I don't have to oh, read thanks, this book Brian. again, okay? Would you recommend it to anyone? No. I say <laughs> watch a movie. Watch so you did movie. not care for it, period, full stop. Listen, I'm glad I read it. Care, I don't want to read the these and the thous. So <laughs> that more than any, that trumps everything, the these and the thous. I don't have to read them. It's not a terrible story. I like the story, but they need to update it. I.e. like the, um, like that theater. I can't think of the name of it right now. I'm sure there's a modern English version somewhere. Well, let's read that one because this is not oh, working well, I'm for not me. reading it again. Yes. However, <laughs> just all I'm trying to say is I'm sure there would have been one that's not in old English okay. for you so to I'm enjoy. So I'm a pass. I'm a pass and I'm not going to tell anybody else to put themselves through that. Unless, of course, you enjoy that. So I'm not recommending it. Period. How about you, Kari? Would you recommend the book? What's your final verdict? I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I felt the characters were richly painted. I like the layers. I like the symbolism. I love how nature represents um, like a purity and how everything um, that humans created was like tainted in a way because that's just truth. That's how that's how it is. So when the first thing they do when they establish a society is make a place for the dead and the place for the outcasts. So uh, I think that's just so such a powerful scene, that opening scene. And then to have Hester walking out of that prison onto that platform, they could have let her just remain in the prison, but they needed her to be shamed publicly so that they could put mm-hmm. all of their secret burdens on her. Mm-hmm. They could make her the scapegoat for what they were doing privately or weren't were doing or weren't doing. But anyway, um, so overall, I will say after the first chapter, I thoroughly enjoyed the storytelling. Mm-hmm. However, there is nothing in me that wants to read this book again. However, I would recommend it because I thoroughly was enjoying it while I was reading it. Um, I also think that first chapter. So the first chapter, I um, that first section I listened to and it was hard. So I can't imagine um, reading it. And for me, it wasn't difficult in the vocabulary. It's not interesting. It's not interesting at all. It is another book. It is like in um, 1984 when that manifesto or whatever is read. And you're like, why is this boring book Mm -hmm. in a really good book? That's how I felt like. But at least this was in the beginning and you can totally skip it. It's fine. It's I don't understand. I really think it was a way for the author to unload some of his personal burdens. Yeah, it's totally not worth reading. It's it's not at all. And and you could. As you go into chapter one, you could feel the difference in the writing. You could feel the difference. It's just not the same at all. And scratch yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. I um. So just to put a bow on that, I um thought this book had a lot of depth. I was very um inspired by the author's, even though. I don't think he was able to paint a realistic woman, in my opinion. And he really made her carry a lot in the book. She had to carry the weight of the plot. She had to help other characters get to their arcs. And even the one she was devoted to, the young priest, he was just so weak. And I don't think originally the author meant to paint him so weak. He just seemed so pathetic to me. 
Um, but, but wait, why do you say that mm-hmm. about the woman? Everything's on the woman. The woman has to not only carry that, the that sin, not but real she, life. No, uh, not. I, I get what you're saying where women are often um, burdened uh, disproportionately. But I mean, just in the writing, I, I felt like everyone is looking to the woman to do the thing that they need her to do so they can do everything they're supposed to do or that they want to do. And um, I don't know, maybe that's a lot like real life, but it, it was it is. Uh, annoying. <laughs> It is. And that's because you know it's true. And so you're like, I can't, I can't. But I don't think the author had that self-awareness or that awareness. I think he was just, that's just how he saw her role in his story. And it was a bit exhausting. Like even when um, the preacher... I, we're not supposed to hate Dimsdale, you guys. Um, but I he's not supposed what? to be... Mm-hmm. annoyed to no end by him. I'm like, already, do you know what you've allowed this woman to go through? And you talking about how you feel? How? Why? Mm-hmm. All you got to do is confess. And you have so, so the strong fear of man, but isn't God supposed to be the one you fear? Like, why are you so worried about? I don't know. I just don't think that. I don't know. But whatever. So different times. (laughs) I also don't need to uh, read books where Native Americans are um, treated as anything less than less than. Mm. I don't need to read that. I'm good. So I would never read this again. However, if someone was like, should I read the Scarlet Letter? I was like, yeah, if you skip the first chapter, you could totally read it. It's an interesting story and really well developed. I agree with that, but I just I can't and I won't. I won't put anybody through that. Yeah, we did your verdict already. You're done. I'm saying I'm recommending it and I would never read it again. (laughs) Well, thank you for your verdict. You really hate this book. I do. I do. (laughs) I appreciate your verdict and your insights into the book. Great. Okay. What are we reading next week, Kari? The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle. It will be our first Sherlock Holmes mystery. I love it. I'm looking forward to it. But thank you. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by me, Alexis Anaria, and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, because... We love you too. We love you too. You can also leave a five-star review on Spotify. We appreciate it. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read something. Read something.